Welcome to Dwellings, a podcast from the City of San Jose Housing Department, where we talk with experts about ending homelessness, building affordable housing, and exploring housing policies at the city and state level. I'm your host, Allie Rico. On today's episode, I'm joined by Michael Lane, director of Spur San Jose, to talk about missing middle housing and opportunity housing in San Jose and the Bay Area. You are the San Jose director for Spur. What do you do for Spur? Yeah, so I obviously cover City Hall and the key issues, land use, zoning, um, economic development from time to time, depending on the issue. Good governance is another one that we're following very closely. Scott obviously worked with uh, transit issues as well, VTA and BARD, and, and weigh in there um, from time to time on, on those particular projects to try to really um, push the urbanist agenda and message. I also do a lot of work at the state level still on behalf of SPUR, and we sponsor bills at the state level. We'll continue to do that as well. Michelle Hutton House working on the um, Guadalupe River Park and and a lot of the design there and, and public public um, space uh, making uh, place making as she as she calls it um, mm-hmm. and just things to to improve um, um, public spaces and amenities in the public realm. Can you define what missing middle housing is? And I know San Jose uses opportunity housing. So if you want to talk about why we use that specific term instead of missing middle housing and then where did these these terms come from sure um and dan perolic from opticos design in berkeley is credited with having uh coined that term uh, but it actually comes out of a larger movement uh, in particular an opportunity also is, is a key piece of this and i'll explain as we go forward but it really comes out of the new urbanism movement which began in the early 1990s um, which is really an old urbanism, but we call it new because we're trying to get back to the way human beings have lived for, for hundreds and if not thousands of years or millennia, uh, as, as it were. And something called the Awani Principles, which was just a conference that was held in the Yosemite National Park in the early 90s as well, where we started to really embed smart growth principles and human scale and livability, walkability, those kinds of things, sustainability overall. And of course that came out of the whole environmental consciousness and the movement around Earth Day in the 70s, et cetera. And then we began to realize how important uh, the built environment is and how planning affects everything we do. And of course, housing is just key. And the more that I've, I've worked in this, in this space for you know, decades, I'm just totally convinced that really government has a real impact, obviously through the zoning and land use, but that also has a direct impact on our quality of lives and how we live and how we live together. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to be at Spur now too, because that's what Spur is all about, is how can we make our, our cities great places uh, to live, play, and work, as we say. But the idea uh, is to get back to building patterns and types um, that are what we would call duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes oftentimes. I live here in South San Jose. And when I walk around my neighborhoods, I see some of these older developments um, where fourplexes are just a thing. It's just, it's just pretty common. Uh, we just stopped doing it for many decades. Um, and you can, it's not, it doesn't create parking problems. There's oftentimes there's offsite parking that's available, uh, but it's just a more affordable way to live, particularly in a very expensive place like 
like San Jose where the median home price is a million dollars. Uh, we used to have something called starter homes where a young family could get into home ownership at an earlier age, but our home ownership rates have declined significantly too. So it's also kind of a solution for that for those who would like to own their own homes, but also to make rentals more accessible near the urban core and near jobs. If we can have these smaller building types, we can create natural affordability or what we call affordability by design. And it's also can create more walkability, what we call gentle density, all those good things that we can do. So it gets a lot of stuff, it gets to a lot of uh, co-benefits co for us in terms of environmental, you know, just to, to, to build within the existing footprint and not have to annex additional land or sprawl out any further. You know, San Jose has already sprawled out significantly. Uh, and now it's really about building up and in, and, and obviously the urban core is important, but also in our neighborhoods because we basically have two building types that are available uh, in the city of San Jose, which are the kind of the downtown high rise towers, which we've been trying to promote. But that's a very expensive, that's the most expensive building type, you know, steel over concrete, um, uh, class A, you know, type one kind of towers, very expensive. And so those rents are going to be very expensive and out of reach for, for much of our population or single family homes, which as I said, you know, million dollars, medium price, that's also pricing people out. So can we create some gentle density, some smaller units and blend them in very well in existing neighborhoods and get people near, near transit and jobs in an affordable way? That's opportunity. You know, you mentioned that single family homes, especially in this area, they're a million plus and then we have these high-rise apartments that, while they're nice, they're all luxury buildings. They're going to be really expensive and out of, out of reach for most people. Who, who really is the target for missing middle housing for this gentle density? And like, what demographic trends or patterns are there when it comes to building that, that housing and who lives in that housing? Yeah, so the way the term missing middle arose was really from the building type. But on the other hand, what we're trying to serve really is a more broadly speaking, I think moderate income families and households, and it could be two income earners with uh, lower wages or one, one person earning um, a moderate income, which typically is 80% to 120% of AMI. Of course, our AMIs are very high uh, in the Bay Area, particularly in Santa Clara County. But so you can even go a little bit below that potentially. But it's your teachers, it's uh, middle management, um, could be folks who work in retail and restaurants if you have multiple incomes in a household. Um, we just don't have that building type for people that, you know, to, even if they want to rent, the homes are very expensive to rent. And as you had mentioned, you, you really can't make something pencil out unless you're building luxury in downtown because of the cost of land and labor and materials um, to, to build those types of, of buildings as well. And so the idea is, can we keep more of those, our, those essential workers that we need in, in our city you know, in our schools, in our public agencies, uh, et cetera, keep them close in, be able to work and live in the same in the same jurisdiction. So that's that's one of the goals. We also have seniors who want to down, downsize now. And if they downsize, they have to leave the area typically because even to get back in to something smaller, it's very expensive because we have, you know, scarcity. And so, uh, and I would say that families who are newly formed and are looking um, to rent or, or to buy, I think they, they're scared of the prices in the Bay Area and oftentimes, they have to leave as well and that can create a brain drain and we can leave, lose a lot of our good young talent that way as well so it's really a broad spec broad spectrum people who want to who want a different kind of lifestyle oftentimes they want to be near amenities and they want the the activity and the excitement and the culture of a large city and to be able to live closely like you do and to be able to walk to city hall or to the theater uh, or the convention center those are just wonderful opportunities and at different stages in our lives when we want to do different things so that's why i have a broad variety of options 
is really important and we've, we've forgotten that and that's what's missing is the missing middle that can create additional uh, opportunities for various lifestyles and the different points of our of our lifetime so one thing that i've noticed is that a lot of these building types they look like they're all coming from like the 30s the 40s the 50s what what was happening to to make this type of housing less appealing you're right we had the bungalow apartment garden apartments you were oftentimes you would see that in the 20s and 30s but i think it really does trace back and sociologists as well as planners have kind of identified sort of the post-world war ii time period um, when demobilization was taking place and veterans are coming back home. We had the GI Bill and um, you know, 30 year mortgages that had become available, mass production of cars, uh, mass production of homes and subdivision tracks, right? To really create that kind of prosperity. Well, to put people back to work and make sure we didn't fall back into a depression, right? That we had just come out of uh, during the war great way to sell additional furniture, right? <laughs> and domestic appliances. And so this whole mass production created this sense of uh, a, a prosperity. And then with the car, we thought, well, now we have a new freedom to travel. And so we can actually all have very large lots and homes, et cetera, single family homes and subdivisions. Obviously a lot of people were excluded from that. African-Americans were not able to get access to, to mortgages. Um, there were racially restricted covenants on, on existing homes very often. Um, people of color were excluded from neighborhoods. So there's a, obviously a really dark side to this as well. And obviously land use and zoning played a key part in that. Uh, you could have an invisible gated community just by making sure it was very expensive um, and excluded people economically and racially. And so that's that's obviously the downside. In addition to all the environmental impacts, it's the probably the least efficient and least sustainable uh, forms that you can build these, these track subdivisions. And so while it did create momentary uh, prosperity, it also created tremendous burdens for local jurisdictions who have to provide the police and the fire services and pave the roads uh, and provide the parks. And it became a very expensive kind of sprawling operation that we're now seeing impacts to San Jose, but to many other jurisdictions as well, to be able to staff up and to be able to provide all these services under the, under, in the context of Proposition 13 where property taxes are of course limited uh, and it creates all kinds of fiscal challenges as well so that's the, another great benefit of the smart growth dense urban kind of uh, gentle density is that we can then try to build back our fiscal system as well to be able to provide uh, these, amen these amenities in a fiscally sustainable way as, as well as environmentally sustainable i feel like sometimes i hear people talk about developers aren't interested in this kind of housing and a, is that even true? And if it is true, how do we, how do we get developers interested in building this kind of housing? Well, so you're actually absolutely right. We do have a labor shortage and a lot of the subcontractors that we do have are all focused on office buildings right now because that's what we've been doing is building large office complexes and most of the labor, and it's very lucrative, most of the labor has been focused in, in, in that particular space. And so there's been less availability or interest, less profitability oftentimes in residential development. And as you said, we really haven't created that kind of a market or industry yet. We're starting to do that, for example, with the ADUs, and that's directly the result of state legislation, but also the city of San Jose very proactively making it easier for homeowners to understand how to build an ADU, for example, uh, and to make it accessible, go down and get your, your permits, you know, off the shelf, pre-approved plans, whatever it may be prefab, um, drop it in, in the backyard. And so we now have contractors who are willing to do that work because it can scale now and there's an ongoing 
uh, workload, as it were, that can actually allow a small GC or a small subcontractor uh, to be able to afford to live and work here in this very expensive area and to know that they're going to have consistent employment because there's going to be a real need. As for ADUs, can we do the same uh, for duplexes and, and triplexes, for example? Can we make sure we have the bank financing that's necessary? And the answer is, is yes, if we have the right policies at the state and local levels to create that kind of environment and set the table, we can actually create a whole new industry here that's going to bring in uh, minority and women-owned enterprises, for example, who are very interested in becoming contractors and subcontractors and doing this work. And it's actually going to be a, a source of economic development and small business development, in addition to providing the needed housing. That actually uh, leads very beautifully into my next question. Um, I remember back in December at a general plan meeting, Dan Prolick, uh, he showed this image of a Sears and Roebuck catalog where you could actually buy a fourplex like straight out of the catalog. And we're seeing that again, like you said, with ADUs where the city, we have a list of prefabs that you can purchase. How can we bring back prefab housing? And is that a viable solution for duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes? I think we can, uh, and it's the way to go. We've got to bring down the cost per unit of housing, absolutely in all types of housing. Uh, and this is a way, certainly a way to do it. We've got to get people comfortable with the customer and the neighbors. Are they going to, are they, how, you know, are they in health and safety codes, for example, at the state and local levels? Will, the, will this, will these materials hold up? You know, will the structures last? Will they continue to look attractive over time? And so we have to get back into that. But I think quite frankly, the economics is going to drive us to more and more of these types of solutions uh, over time. And I've even heard about, you know, 3D laser, printing or whatever homes and so also, I'm not sure if we're there yet but you know all types of creative alternative ways of providing the housing and so it's going to take a top to bottom look but there are lots of interests who oppose any of this to make it easier to build for, for a variety of reasons uh, and so we'll have to overcome some of that opposition or then in, in exchange for doing and making it easier then we have to pile on additional you know fees or requirements um, and that that's always the danger um, you know in California when we try to make something easier do others want to to latch on as a, as a policy hook. So we won't want to be careful about that, but make sure we're doing it right and maintain health and safety and, and attractiveness and, and durability. But I think the economics will continue to drive that as they've done with the ADUs, for example. Uh, and, and I think, you know, particularly as the work from home movement may or may not grow over time, we have seen uptick in demand or interest in uh, creating additional space at one's home, maybe maybe living near an urban core, but not in it. and. And, and I think some of these building types, the smaller building types, and these alternative building uh, methods and materials are going to make that possible for more people. Uh, particularly in San Jose, recently we've had conversations about opportunity housing and, you know, for like as much support as, as there has been for it, there has also been a lot of community pushback around it. How can we shift this community mindset to a more positive view of this type of housing like how, how, how do we, as, as government employees, as advocates, as nonprofits, how do we change that, that conversation so it's a more positive conversation? I think it's a, it's a cultural shift as well. And I'm really proud of, of the young people like you and others who are really working in this space and promoting this and you know, doing great work in the housing department as well to educate people and to show them that it doesn't have to be scary dangerous. In fact, it's how we used to live. And, and so this actually cuts across, I think, partisan politics and, and affiliations, both their you know, 
Republicans and Democrats who oppose new development, but others who say, let's get back to a more humane way of living, a more human scale, walkable, healthy kind of a lifestyle. And so I'm really seeing a movement in that direction as well. And if you can demonstrate that aesthetics are important, aesthetics kind of form how we are as a people together. And so as long as we can have those high design standards and aesthetics um, and site plan review, that can still happen uh, without killing a project. Uh, it's kind of like the form-based code movement as well. Let's be less concerned about what's happening inside a particular building or, or how many people are there per, you know, 20 units per acre. Let's just take a look at something that blends in well, that's attractive, but actually meets the needs of our people and to be able to afford to live near where they work. And so I think if we can make both that moral and aesthetic case as well, we need to bring that because we're not trying to harm people's lifestyles, we're actually trying to create a more healthy way of living in the world. The state of Oregon passed a missing middle bill, I think last year. Minneapolis recently eliminated single family zoning citywide. And Portland, within like the past two months, just passed their residential infill uh, project bill. Um, I know there have been a lot of bills in the past, like maybe two or three years with the California legislature. What, what has California done to try or to successfully change zoning citywide? And what else can we do to make make that kind of an impact on our cities. Yeah, I think it's an example that California sometimes isn't as progressive as it thinks it is. We're actually, we're falling behind uh, some of these other states and, and jurisdictions, which is unfortunate. And, and as you know, you know, Scott Wiener running a bill SB 50, which had some of these components and was really, I think, building on and based on some of the work that had happened in Minneapolis and, and in Portland and, and, and Oregon, uh, for example. But we're not giving up hope. We did have a bill SB 1120 that, the Senate President Pro Tem uh, Tony Atkins had run and actually got through the legislature, but then at the end of the session, it got caught up in needing a concurrence vote and, and didn't quite make it. But the votes were there, and that's the good news. Uh, to really make a buy right uh, uh, lot splits and, and duplexes, which would be tremendous progress. And that's all we're asking from the state is not to be too prescriptive, but just set kind of a baseline. Those more progressive jurisdictions who want to do more can do that. But at a minimum, I think. The other argument is it creates additional property rights for someone who owns a piece of property and may want to do something with it. So it's not one size fits all. It's just this is kind of the basics. If we're really going to move and address climate change, which I think that's another big issue with all these fires going on, it's really brought people's attention to the fore about how and where we build is so important. Uh, and it's not a question of not building at all or trying to maintain in, in amber neighborhoods. I mean, no neighborhood should see radical change, but every neighbor is going to have to see some change as the Kind of the strong towns movements likes to likes to put it uh, and so i think that's the message we want to deliver but let's bring the good examples maybe it's a pilot program where we have some willing uh homeowners i mean that's the other thing when these bills pass it's not like immediately overnight you're going to have everyone <laughs> demolishing their homes or creating duplexes it's going to be really more subtle than that it's going to take time um and, and i know people claim that wall street's going to come in and and, and buy up all these homes but i'm just not um, necessarily seeing that. What we'd like to do is create more home ownership opportunities, I think, for, for households of color, for lower income households, for people across the spectrum, really, in a metropolitan area where there are uh, good employment opportunities. And, and these are ways uh, that we can get at that. Uh, kind, kind of to build off of that, Vox recently had an article and then Sightline kind of built on it. This idea of when the state approves this type of legislation, where it loosens restrictions on zoning. The state doing it doesn't have, it just gives cities more of a, um, 
a green light to do the thing that they might have been trying to do for a while, but didn't really feel any pressure to do it. And I'm wondering if like a bill like SB 50 or SB 1120, do you see that? Do you see that giving San Jose some fire to be like, oh, okay, now that we have like goals from the state, this is going to be a lot easier instead of trying to do it on our own. I think that's right. Sometimes it takes the forcing mechanism of the state to preempt the local jurisdictions, because if you wait around, even in the more progressive jurisdictions, it's very difficult, as you saw with the opportunity housing discussion. I mean, San Jose is a large city, yes, but let's face it, it's really a, a series of suburbs kind of stitched together um, in, in reality. And so we have to make the case that we're not ruining people's quality of life. We're actually improving the overall quality of life for everyone and making our city function better. Is the solution to missing middle housing about creating new housing products, implementing local zoning changes, establishing more income-restricted housing, or a combination, or is it something else? Well, of course the answer is yes, right? <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's what we're all about, because there's no one particular policy that's going to solve this. Uh, and it's like inclusionary housing, very effective, very important, but can also be, uh, can, um, can limit um, development or make it infeasible if it's if it's excessive. And so it's always a balancing act, right, with these various policies. Uh, but to the extent that San Jose can can lean forward on this, it's very helpful to have, you know, the third largest city in, in, in the state um, saying yes to legislation instead of saying hell no, because we've got lots of folks up there in the Capitol opposing some of this, but then also demonstrating locally how, how to do it and how to implement, which you've done with the ADUs, for example. So we'd love to see you take up the opportunity housing and get the green light from the uh, the city council to really, I think, to pursue this and de have some demonstra demonstration projects and some willing um, homeowners who are willing to say, hey, we can do this the right way and we can show you. We, I mean, we obviously we can bring in pictures, but it's also good to see some live examples. And sometimes, and I know you've done this in the past too, is that we take people on tours. They can be walking tours or, or to take them on the bus because San Jose is a big city, <laughs> you know, but um, to just show them some neighborhoods because sometimes we, we think it's all single family, but like, like you said, in your neighborhood or in mine, there's lots of examples of the way this can work very well and can be very beneficial, uh, you know, both for the tenants and, and the owners and the neighborhoods and the schools. And, and quite frankly, um, some of our uh, legacy, you know, commercial centers that are on, that are dying, let's, let's redevelop and repurpose those and make some kind of uh, mixed use and mixed income communities that can be much more, more dynamic and I think can be better uh, for the city in every manner of way, including uh, generating revenues for the city. I have some friends that live like in Campbell and in, in cities, smaller cities surrounding San Jose, and they have been very interested in what San Jose is going to do for opportunity housing. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak at all to what Spur is hoping to see, like if, if San Jose does this, how great will that be for the rest of the region? And like, are you hoping that Oakland and San, and San Francisco will then go like, well, if San Jose did it, <laughs> then. As San Jose goes, goes the Bay Area and California. <laughs> no, Hopefully. But we're, we're, encouraging, we're encouraging to be bold uh, and to provide that leadership. And I know Mayor Licardo and the council are really interested in that. Uh, but it, it would really, I think, create the kind of leadership that we need right now to say, and for all kinds of reasons, and to meet our climate change goals and, and everything, economic recovery, all kinds of, of, of benefits that would accrue, apart from just the housing, which we all also need very much. And so let's, let's um, address the issues of concern that are valid that, that our residents may have, but let's not allow negativity to dominate uh, or opposition um, to win the day, I think, on this, because this is just too important for future generations and for our own 
you know, our current um, quality of life, quite frankly, to make transit run better and every everything work better, um, quite frankly. So it, it's really a time to stand up and be bold. And that's why I think the department can really play a key role by bringing forward people like uh, Dan Perolik and, 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 and show people what this looks like and what the potential and possibilities are. And we begin to say, hey, this isn't so unusual. It's just that we stopped doing it for a while and so we forgot. And so now we've got people defending the status quo, which quite frankly is a relatively recent status quo, which really isn't working for a lot of people anymore. Um, and so let's get out there and make, and make that case, but do so, you know, as, as, um, um, as cheerfully as possible, you know, and, and, and not, a, not attack people who are opposed, but just kind of bring them along because we understand um, the fears, but this is not fear of the unknown because it's the known and it's what we've done before. And like I say, the newer urbanism is the old urbanism that we really want to bring, bring back and get back to. So, what what would be one piece of advice that you would give to people uh, if they are looking to get more involved in creating more options for housing in in the town that they live in, whether or not it's in San Jose? Yeah, so Dan Perelic actually has a new book out, Missing Middle Housing, uh, which is exciting. But he also has a great website, which is for free. You can just go on there and take a look. But start to... Um, educate yourself, get aware of some of the pictures that you had talked about and, and some of the renderings about what it actually looks like and what we're talking about and begin to, to share this with other people as well uh, so that we can reduce the fear factor and really realize that we're actually bringing back a more humane uh, style of life and quality of life. And that's really what we're all about fundamentally. It's not about units you know, or buildings. It's actually about people and, and the way we all live together. And so that's, that's what, what this is all about. And so let's Let's take those good examples. Let's share pictures with each other about what duplexes and triplexes look like and, and how beautiful they can be uh, and, and really blend in well with exist, in existing neighborhoods and, and, you know, and without disrupting the character of the neighborhood at all. In fact, I would say actually enhancing it in, in many ways um, with, a, with, a, with a lifestyle that we actually had and then lost and that we, can, that we can, can recapture. And so going to that website, I would say also when this comes before the city council, we need people, we need your support. Let's get out there and talk about this. Uh, let's bring those examples also from other states and jurisdictions that have done this uh, and make the case. As I said, if you go into that four-year, the general plan review uh, task force website, you can see the spur letter, but you can see other communication too on opportunity housing and, and how people are, are weighing in on that. But we need, we need people to come out and, and, and raise their voice and say, look, we, we support this. We not only don't think it's destructive of existing neighbors, we actually think it's beneficial uh, to our city and to our people. Thanks again to Michael Lane for joining me on today's show. To learn more about the work SPUR does in San Jose and the Bay Area, check out their website at spur.org. Thanks for listening to Dwellings, the City of San Jose Housing Department podcast. Our theme music is Speed City, composed and performed by Etain Charles. Thanks to San Jose Jazz for letting us use your music. If you like the show, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. If you're looking for more ways to get involved with housing and homelessness response, please check out the show notes. You can follow the housing department on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at SJ City Housing. Our artwork is by Chelsea Palacio. Dwellings is produced by me, Ali Rico, and Jeff Scott of the Housing Department.